generally we go to 8.25. Tonight my goal is to get us out a little bit before that at 8.15. Why am I doing this? Well, uh, because tonight is one of the uh, two nights um, this summer of Manhattan Henge. Do you know what that is? Some of you do, some of you don't. This is an extraordinarily hippie thing for me to be doing, by the way. I might as well be showing you a documentary on Burning Man. (laughs) But uh, Manhattan Henge, I grew up here, so I've actually known about this phenomenon before. It was actually given the name Manhattan Henge by the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. But what it is, is uh, a few times every year, twice generally, the sun sets in such a way that the light perfectly aligns with the grid of streets. And uh, for those of you that would like to catch it, it won't be coming again until next May, so tonight it will be on at 8.30. Alright, so uh, human beings are very complex, aren't we? Um, Why is that? Well, um, the human brain that supports consciousness and the mind is made up of many parts, and those parts are all uh, trying to seek different or establish different needs to keep us uh, going as uh, ongoing entities. The brainstem and hindbrain, uh, which are the oldest parts of the brain, maintain homeostasis. In other words, they keep you breathing, thermally regulated, they help you digest. They're what uh, is your core movements getting standing up and sitting in chairs, etc. Uh, so that's the oldest part of the brain, and uh, it controls breath. And uh, the breath, in and of itself, is a very important tool for not just uh, regulation of uh, homeostasis, but also to as a way to develop peace and to maintain calm. The second area or group is the midbrain, uh, which is the core of human arousal system, survival and arousal, uh, including areas like the amygdala and uh, hypothalamus and hippocampus and pons, etc. And what that does is it um, arouses us in the when we are encounter external threats and also activates us to go out in search of food and the midbrain creates activations in the outer body their impulse uh, impulses to either defend yourself to freeze or to run or to brave the outside world to gather up food so you very often will feel it in the back of the neck, the shoulders, the arms, the limbs. Uh, the Buddha called this the second foundation of mindfulness, feelings. The first foundation of mindfulness is awareness of the breath and the basic posture of the body. So then the third group is the emotional mind, roughly the equivalent of the right hemisphere of your brain. And that part of the brain is entirely dedicated to keeping you securely connected to other human beings. 
that's where all of your emotions are activated from. Your emotions are largely nonverbal uh, messages that tell you how securely connected you are to the tribe, to other people in your life. And when you feel uh, vulnerably disconnected, you have negative, sad feelings. And you'll often feel them as tightness in your belly, uh, heartache you'll feel as a tightness in your chest, not being heard by the people you care about is a tightness in your throat. When you're very angry, you might feel it as a lock in your jaw or a furrowed brow. We feel the emotional activations largely in the front of the body because that's where the vagal vagus nerve fibers run. Uh, the vagal vagus cluster of nerves are essentially the ways that we emotionally communicate non-verbally to other people to let other people know how we're doing. Do we feel sad? In other words, we're feeling disconnected, lonely, not securely connected, or do we feel happy? We feel connected, or do we feel pride because we feel our actions are benefiting the tribe? So we're communicating this all the time, but again, all of these messages are happening just like feeling states and the the breath, they're largely being activated unconsciously. They're not under mostly conscious control. Another way that emotional activations are known to us is by attention. The right cingulate of your brain is far more, uh, is far stronger when activated than the left cingulate, which is your conscious thought-based part of your mind. So if you've ever gone through a painful emotional event, a breakup, you go to a party perhaps and you see an ex at the party and you really don't want to think about them or monitor them or have anything to do with them and yet that's a sound effect done free of charge. It uh, pulls your awareness to that one object or person or memory you don't want to think about. And so a lot of the times in life when we are uh, angry, uh, we experience insomnia, we experience emotional unrest, is because the emotional mind, the right hemisphere, is pulling our attention to an emotional event while the left hemisphere wants us to be thinking about something else. And it creates an internecine <sighs> <laughs> battle. I'm proud that I use the word internecine. That's a word that you read and you really never use in language. <laughs> if my mom, if she were alive, would feel very good about the money she spent on my education. She'd say, he used internecine in a, in a talk. So, uh, so all of those messages are, are, and all those parts of the brain are very often at war in the sense that your emotional brain can, wants you to securely connect, but it also can ex have experienced emotional woundings. And so sometimes it will propel you to uh, run or be pessimistic about um, your emotional uh, entanglements with other people. But other times it will want you to reach out and be vulnerable and disclose your feelings. Your midbrain will be balancing the urges to go out, accumulate food and supplies while it's also balancing fear of being attacked. Your brainstem and hindbrain are trying to keep your body 
warm but not too warm, that's trying to keep your food digested but not, uh, but only at certain rates, etc., etc., etc. Finally, on top of all these unconsciously driven uh, impulses and uh, neural machinery and circuits, there is the left hemisphere, which is the part of the brain which produces consciousness. And the left hemisphere is just as complex as the other parts. It maintains long-term goals, abstract logical concepts, and most importantly, it provides what the great neuroscientists Michael Gazaniga and Joseph Ledoux call the interpreter. The interpreter is the ongoing inner chatter in your mind, the thinking part of your mind, that essentially tries to create the illusion that there is a single entity in your brain creating, producing, authoring, and controlling all of your actions. Now this is a wonderful illusion and it's a complete illusion. It's as much an illusion as those humans that believe that the sun revolved around the earth simply because we are on the earth so it appears that way. Because we are conscious and we think using thoughts, we naturally tend to believe that our thoughts are the epicenter, the causal epicenter of the human mind. In fact, thoughts arrive very, very, very late in the causal chain. In fact, uh, Benjamin Labette placed thinking about the very last uh, part of uh, human impulses and human uh, uh, compulsions and activations and arousal. Uh, in fact, most of the time what's happening is we act and then we add a story about why we did what we did. Now that sounds very counterintuitive. You experience life as if you think about something, you get frightened and then your body tenses, but in fact that's the exact opposite order of the way it happens. Ever since in the West, Jay, uh, William James in 1895 with the James Lang theory showed that people first unconsciously see stressors or have unconscious emotional activations and their body tenses and then at the very end of the chain we add a story. And as Ledoux and Gazanega showed in the 1970s very often the story we add about why we turned left or right, why we got up when we got up, why we decided to eat when we did, why we called up this friend as opposed to that friend, why we quit this job as opposed to stay in it or stayed in the job rather than quit it. All of the stuff we add is generally or at least very often incorrect. They are stories the interpreter, the left hemisphere, is adding to justify, explain, rationalize, and create a nice narrative to largely unconsciously driven impulses. This is why if you've ever tried to change your behavior, if you've ever tried to talk yourself down from a fear activation or a panic attack, if you've ever tried to logic yourself into being more confident in social settings when you feel shut down, it doesn't work because you are trying to control unconsciously driven activations with the very last part of the causal chain of the mind. 
it's a little bit the analogy is of, uh, that neuroscientists use of the monkey riding on the back of the elephant. The monkey believes that it's steering the elephant, but in fact, the elephant is deciding where it goes, and the monkey is just telling the story about why the elephant turned left or right or stopped, or I don't know what it did. <laughs> An analogy, I'm going too far with it. Um, so, this is why the Buddha recommended as an approach to self-regulation, self-awareness, to become, to develop a greater sense of self-understanding and also to, if we would like to, to take more skillful actions in life, we have to invert the way we normally relate to our own experience. Most of us, when we find ourselves, for instance, shutting down in social situations or we find ourselves uh, experiencing panic attacks, we try to rationalize with ourselves. We try to talk ourselves out of it. We try to build ourselves up with a nice story about how we'll do fine or, or something like that. We try to appeal to the rational, logical mind, which is, again, far too late. So the Buddha said we start with the first foundation, which is the breath and the posture of the body. Now this has subsequently been shown 2,500 years after the Buddha showed that breath and body comes before feeling, which comes before emotions, which comes before thought. That's what's called his Paticca Samapada, his chain of human experience. Um, now, as we know from neuroscience, that's the exact order in which not only we experience arousal and impulses, but it's the exact order in which we should go about trying to adjust our behavior and to understand how we act and to influence our impulses. So, the chief tool with the breath and body is one with the breath to extend your out-breath. Your in-breath is largely in control of parts of the brain that are so ancient and are so beyond your uh, control that it's not really worthwhile. And it, even if you did control the lengths of your, your in-breath, which you can, but it's not going to deactivate cortisol and help you relax and calm and help you um, essentially achieve a state of security if you're feeling needlessly frightened. Extending the length of the out-breath reduces the amount of cortisol and it sends messages up the insula which tell your brain that you're safe, that nothing in fact is going on. Human beings, we tend to needlessly become activated by fear of things that are not actually threats. Uh, we tend to be very good at uh, creating uh, stressors that are actually not present. We tend to live as if we are still uh, hunted by predators when in fact we no longer are. So the brain has not yet caught up with our external circumstances. So to move your brain to version 2.0, to hack your brain, to move your operating system up, to save me from this ridiculous metaphor and move on, uh, <laughs> is to start by lengthening your out-breath 
And also, uh, a lot of studies have shown by going into the play state, which is essentially lengthening the body, keeping your head up, meeting other people's eyes, lifting the chin, etc., etc., etc. That goes into play states. A lot of people who, uh, who grew up or who grow up in abusive families maintain the structure and the process of abuse because they keep themselves in startle positions. Uh, their shoulders contracted, their heads down, their eyes not meeting eye contact with other people. And what that does, um, the work of Pat Ogden and uh, Basil van der Kolk and so many other um, trauma therapists have shown, if we keep ourselves in the startle state, it limits our responses to defensive activations. It keeps us from connecting and establishing secure relational experiences in life. So it keeps us locked in and reproducing the abuses of childhood. So a lot of sensory motor and, and um, uh, new uh, trauma therapists just work with keeping people in confident body shapes and long extended out So that's the first foundation of mindfulness. Be aware of how you're breathing, how you're holding the body, and then subtly adjust it into a, a posture and a breath that is more conductive to the state that you want to be in, a mental state, I should say. Now the second, the second foundation or principle of mindfulness is feelings. Feelings are the word we have for the internally felt sensations of either I want this experience to end or I want more of this experience or I don't give a crap about this experience. Feelings only come in three flavors. That's it. Uh, because they're controlled by the midbrain and so we feel them internally as action impulses. Uh, we might feel the stress in our shoulders, the back of the neck, we might feel tension in our legs, muscles. They're impulses to run, flee, fight, or to accumulate, or to gather up. And essentially, working with feelings is, again, become aware of them, find the areas where your feelings are most apparent, whether they're in the back of the neck, the shoulders. And this is why I start each meditation with relaxing the shoulders, because I'm essentially addressing the midbrain and trying to relax the activations of either flight or fight or, uh, you know, um, craving. So relaxing the shoulders, the back of the neck, the external muscles of the body, relaxing, again, the first foundation, the breath, are some of the most effective tools in establishing calm and establishing a sense of being safe in triggering situations in reestablishing a sense of neutrality and also when we're feeling activated and we want to scream or shout or we if we want to before we express ourselves if we want to work with slightly deactivating those are very efficient tools the third foundation is emotional awareness. And as I noted, very often we feel emotional activations in the front of the body, in the belly, the chest, the throat, and the face, the 
areas of the body that register the activations of the vagal vagus nerve. And uh, people like Stephen Porges and other neurobiologists have shown that when people are not dissociated, i.e. numbing, shutting down, freezing, most of our emotions are expressed using this area of the body. Um, and rather than encouraging people, unlike with the first two foundations, to try to at first change their settings, I encourage people to simply develop emotional awareness and integration, which means to feel the feelings, to be able to, from body mapping, know, oh, I know I'm pretending that I'm not sad, but my chest is really hollow and tight. I know I want to appear like I'm not frightened, but my belly is really tight. I know I don't want to be or appear angry, but my jaw is locked and my forehead is tight. So to spend time developing emotional awareness. Now, sometimes we do want to work with the emotional mind's control of attention. When we're emotionally triggered, when we feel we've been mistreated, abandoned, rejected, harmed, when people have been unkind, very often we'll find that the emotional right hem the right cingulate will keep pulling our awareness back again and again and again, replaying the memory. The disappointing parent, the disappointing girlfriend or boyfriend, the disappointing co-worker, the disappointing roommate, etc., 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 will go back again and again and again, reliving the, resent the uh, event. They're called, obviously, resentments. Resentment means to feel again, and that's very accurate to the emotional mind because when we bring the awareness back, we also tend to feel the emotion again in the vagal, 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 vagus area of the body. So, if you want to address emotional activations, the key is to not fight that, to not try to push away or control your attention, but instead to allow the mind to go back to the unpleasant memory and then to expand awareness rather than try to push out of your mind the unpleasant event. A very important psychologist named Dan Wegner who wrote the book White Bears showed that trying to push away emotional thoughts doesn't work, can't be done. Not only is the emotional right cingulate too powerful, but there's a reason your brain keeps bringing it up again and again and again. And the more you try to resist it, the more, his studies showed, you'll think about an unpleasant memory. So instead, the most effective tool is to welcome it, to say, it's okay, you're allowed to be there, and then while keeping that memory in awareness, expand sensory awareness to include body, breath, sounds of the room, any other sensory experience that's present. So what we're doing is we're not pushing away emotional activations, we're diluting them. I've found this myself to be a very, very effective tool when those, on those rare occasions where I wake up and I have some form of emotional activation that in the past might have led to insomnia, I just say, welcome, you're allowed, 
And then I just progressively relax the body and the breath while I allow the unpleasant memory to be in the mind. And I find that it's much, much easier to deactivate. Uh, awareness of thoughts. The key to awareness of thoughts, of course, is learning to detach from thoughts. Detach does not mean suppression or repression. Detaching means, as we talked about in the meditation, being able to step back far enough that we are not essentially dissociating, losing connection with sensory awareness around us, and also that the thoughts are not dominating, that we're essentially not, in quotes, lost in thought. We're not trying to, again, learn to suppress or repress thoughts. We're simply learning to detach, to be able to skillfully know how to relate to thoughts that will uh, cause needless suffering, needless will trigger emotional activations, and uh, or will keep us locked into obsessive ideations of some sort or another. The key way to do this, of course, is not to wait until you're activated by an obsessive thought. Generally, by that point, it's very late in the game, and because the thought is obsessions are generally trying to distract us from negative feelings in the body. So that's why they're so difficult to detach from. It's useful to, one, develop a good routine of when you're having positive events in your life. Positive, you get good news, somebody congratulates you, you get on vacation, somebody uh, applauds your work, somebody says you're attractive. I don't know where that came from, but anyway. Uh, so when you get good news, to start to cultivate a relationship with that event where you don't turn it into a story about self or identity. You just feel the feeling of, oh, that was nice. Keep awareness in the body, but get into the good habit of not when you get a compliment or you get good news to turn it into a story of everything's coming up roses. Life is going to be uh, nothing but up and up from here on. <laughs> the more you attach to thoughts when you have positive events in life, the stickier the thoughts will be on the way down. And neurally, when there's an up, there will always be a down, except for a very few kind of skillful thoughts, which I'll tell you that at the very end, which do not have bad sides. So it's important to remember, to reflect on impermanence, to remind yourself that just as there will be people who like what we do, there will be people who don't like what we do, as the Buddha said, there will be people who think you talk too much. There will be people who think you talk too little. And there will be people who won't like you even if you talk the exact right amount. So you <laughs> cannot win. And the more you realize that, the easier it is to detach from the story, feel the feelings of elation, which will pass quickly enough, and then we get back to our business. <laughs> the reason for this is that it also does it keeps us from being... Uh, essentially uh, attached to the negative thoughts when we get bad news. It's very difficult to detach from thoughts of I'm a loser, nobody loves me, I'll always be alone after a breakup 
if when we get into a relationship, we think, now oh, I found Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. This is it. This is the winner. Everything's solved. It's obviously we're setting ourselves up. Second is, of course, maintaining mindful body awareness. The more you maintain body awareness and feeling awareness, the easier it is to detach. This is why mindfulness is not something that should simply be done on the cushion. It's something that I try to practice as often as possible. When I do my one-on-one -on -one work with people, when I, even when I teach, I try to keep my belly as soft as I can. I try to know the length of my out I try to make sure that my shoulders, right now they're a little tight because I'm up like this, but most of the time I try to keep my shoulders relaxed. So embodied awareness is very, very helpful. Greeting thoughts are, is a very, very useful way to detach from thoughts, to get a little distance, to observe thoughts without identifying with them. And finally, I'd like to address the kinds of thoughts that the Buddha said were always skillful, that there are no negative sides to. So if you have to use your mind, here are some really safe things to think about as much as you want. And these thoughts, no matter how hard you try, will not turn into obsessions. You just can't. The key, if you ever want to turn your mind into an obsessive, fixated, painful environment, I can tell you the exact recipe. This is what you do. You think about yourself, and you think about yourself speculating about the future. And also you bring other people into it. That are the perfect ingredients for suffering. Because neurally, thoughts about self activate the default mode operation of the mind, which is stressful. It activates the ventral medial part of the brain, which is also releases cortisol. And when we do that, speculation about what's going to happen to me in the future is of course unknowable as are worrying about what other people think about you is unknowable so you have the perfect ingredients to keep your mind obsessing and going on in a spiral of unknowable papancha what the Buddha called just meaningless thoughts that never end thinking and worrying about what other people think about you in no way help you become more moral or skillful people in fact, it makes you become more shut down, defensive, frightened, and avoidant. So, if you do, on the other hand, want to have a mind that is calmer, less obsessed, le more spacious, then the thoughts to think are one, greeting with well-being in the sense of uh, open, welcoming um, experience as it arises, even difficult experience just saying yes this is happening right now interestingly enough no matter how hard you try when you try when you welcome experience it's very hard to obsess when you say yes I'm awake it's the middle of the night yes this person that I really don't like has just walked in to the party and is moving directly to me <laughs> yes Almost all obsession is born not only of self and speculation, but of resistance, trying to get rid of, trying to push away, trying to suppress. Thoughts of welcoming, saying yes, actually tend to switch off the parts of the mind that 
tend to uh, activate a lot of language, the Rokas and Wernicke's regions. The second tool is compassion, which is when they're suffering, rather than judging or criticizing or, or in any way thinking you're doing something wrong or other people are doing something wrong, to try to develop a sense of care, a sense of empathy for suffering whenever you encounter it. Third is what's called sympathetic appreciation, which is practicing feeling good about other people's successes. This is considered to be the most difficult of all the skillful thoughts because most of us live in what's called zero-sum thinking, which is the belief there's only so much happiness to go around. Happiness is not a commodity. It's not a material thing. It's not in limited supply. Happiness comes from care, compassion, self-acceptance, love, kindness, appreciation. So therefore, the success of another being in no way comes at your expense. In fact, um, it's been shown that the more you experience and practice sympathetic appreciation, the happier you will be by studies by Jonathan Haidt. Uh, Sandra Leibomorski, Martin Seligman, and so forth. So the more you practice that, the happier the camper you'll be. And finally, uh, equanimity. Equanimity is the tendency to know when we're overextended in the world trying to solve all of our problems externally. And the willingness again and again and again when we are caught up in craving or aversion to bring our awareness back into the body and start again with those foundations of mindfulness. Relaxing the out breath, keeping the body in the play state, relaxing the states of um, the feeling tones that have arisen as uh, arousal, to work with the emotional awareness and emo awareness of the emotional mind's activations, and to simply remember that you don't, nor can you, figure out life. It's just something that your thoughts are just an add-on that's coming at the very end. And to stay present with your experiences to give yourself a far greater gift than the ongoing attempt to try to change your experience through thought alone.